either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Got a little bit of everything this week. Something for the adults, something for the families, something for not for the families. <laughs> <laughs> Documentaries, the whole bit. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we're from MadWolf.com, and we will start this week with legendary performer Judy Garland arriving in London in the winter of 1968 to perform a series of sold-out concerts. It's Judy. Jump, jump, jump. I don't have a home. Can't even get a manager. London would offer you a lot of money. Talk of the town is desperate to do a deal with you. You're saying I have to leave my children if I want to make enough money to be with my children? Judy? Have you seen Judy? There's an audience out there waiting to hear you sing. My mouth dry and it could fall apart. Listen to me. Judy! You'll be fine. On you go. Are you going to be all right? What if I can't do it again? Mama? Mama, are you there? Somewhere. You need to take better care of yourself. You understand? Everybody has their troubles. And I've had mine. I just want what everybody wants. I seem to have a harder time getting it. Do you take anything for depression? Four husbands. Didn't work. There's a that I you won't forget me, will you? Promise you won't. Well, right away, Renee Zellweger is being mentioned in the early favorites for Oscar, and I have to say, that is no surprise. She is fantastic. She really is. You know, it's it's one of those physical transformations, and it's one of those, you know, when somebody does, they play a real-life person mm-hmm. that we all know so well. We've all seen so many times. It's very hard, I think, sometimes for that not to seem like a caricature, yes. and I don't think this ever does, even for a minute. No, it doesn't, especially because this is set near the end of her life, and um, Renee Zellweger is just about the right age. I think Renee Zellweger just turned 50, mm. and uh, Judy Garland died at 47, So the, uh, but she looked hard. I yeah, mean, she, she did, yeah. Um, so the, the age is just about right, and she, she really does get the outward mannerisms. She if, does. If you watch some of those last interviews that Judy Garland gave before her death, just little ticks, little ways she held her head. And the way she spoke and just just certain mannerisms. She has them all. And there's also the way she walks, the way she yeah. carries herself. It's not the way you expect, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a celebrity or, or, you know, like a, a stage performer to carry themselves. But but she, I mean, she does. She really, really nails it. And at the same time, I think she doesn't lose, again, it doesn't feel like a caricature. There's a real human soul in there. Exactly. Exactly right. And she's got another great vocal performance right? here, too, because she does her own singing. And if you remember, in Chicago, she sounded fantastic, and that was one where never nobody really knew she could sing like right. that. And she's obviously had a lot of uh, study and training to sing in the style of Judy Garland, right. because this is a totally different style. And no, of course, she doesn't sound exactly like her, but it's really good as far as the... The phrasing and the way she held certain notes, and so it's a it's a fully formed performance, especially during the musical numbers. And I think the musical numbers are staged really well. Yeah. And a lot of times they're long takes, really extended takes, and some really tight close-ups. And she holds them very, very well. 
But uh, it does it. Folks, this is based on a stage play called The End of the Rainbow. And uh, it's the director is Peter Gould. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did uh, True Story a right. few years ago. Right. Jonah, Jonah Hill, Hill and James Franco, mm-hmm. which was pretty good. And then it was adapted by writer Tom Edge, who worked on The Crown, the TV show. And I really think, I think you're with me on this, three-fourths of this movie is really good. I think it slips up when, well, usually when you're doing a, a biopic, a, a movie biography, most of the time, I think the good rule of thumb is the more, the more you can focus in, the, your chances of really getting some intimacy are better. Instead of trying to do birth to death yeah, the whole focus life. Focus in, you mean yeah. take a slice. Yes, take exactly. a slice of the person's life and let that sort of tell a larger story right. while still being very focused. And I think you're right. And, and I, I the, So the problem with this film is when it gives us flashbacks to her childhood during the filming of The Wizard of Oz and, yeah. and sort of and around that time period. And firstly, the, the tone is, I, I, I think you're right. I think the word you used was forced. It seems very heavy-handed yeah. comparatively. But the other thing is, I don't think it's necessary. I don't either because this is, again, set uh, in 1968. And by that time, Julie, Judy Garland had fallen on... You know, the work was drying up pretty much right. in the States, and so was the money. And uh, already Liza Minnelli, her daughter, had already grown and gone. She was working on her own career, but she had the two young children at home with um, producer Sid Luft, who was by now an ex-husband, and she was kind of fighting him for custody. And she really didn't have a stable living environment, so she needed money to continue to try to keep her kids. So she took this lucrative offer for this string of concerts in London, and as she points out in the in the film, it's a real catch-22. She has to leave her children mm-hmm. to try to make money to keep her children. Right. But they were offering her uh, all this money, so so she went. And that's the anchor that this, this movie is based on. So you definitely get a, a, a sense, a real sense of, of her as a sad, tragic figure mm-hmm. that had been such a superstar. And, and you're right. I don't think the flashbacks are necessary because when they do... It is such a change in tone. It's so much more forced about her being just a, a, mis, a mistreated cog in the MGM studio machine, which I'm not doubting that she was. Oh, no, I think, I mean, it's clear that she was, but I feel like her, uh, you know, late in life, where she finds herself, I, I, I don't think you need to see her, her early upbringing to right. understand that, that this is a result of that. And also that... You know, it's more than that. She's not just a victim. You know, I mean, she she makes terrible decisions. Oh yeah, she yeah. goes through five husbands in forty seven years. That's gonna that's gonna put a dent in your in yeah. your savings account. Yeah, for sure. And I started thinking about it more, and I thought, okay, well, is that a conscious choice to try to appease some of the younger generations, the younger audiences that may not be as familiar with Judy Garland? I don't know because. You're right when we talk about it being unnecessary. I really think it is. Uh, even if you come even if you come into it with limited knowledge of Judy Garland's career, I still don't think it no, is necessary. I don't think you need to see it. I, I actually think it was probably because they didn't want her to come off as, you know, there's a there's a line in it, you know, no, everybody knows that you're impossible. You know, and I I think maybe it's it was an attempt to soften her to make her seem more like a victim, yeah. which of course she was a victim of this of this studio system. But partly, I think because the performance was so good, you you don't see her as being just this mad woman who mm-hmm. can't be contained and who can't just be held responsible. 
I mean, she seems like the result of this. And she mentions it, of course, never getting any sleep and, you know, being working from the time she was two. Mm -hmm. I just don't feel like I don't feel like it was necessary. And I also just don't feel like those those scenes are executed with the same type of realism or subtlety or subtlety as yeah. the rest of the film. And there are some really touching moments. Uh, there's there's a, a sequence where she meets a couple of male super fans at the stage door. So nice. And that whole they bit end is up so nice. they try to find somewhere to eat and it's too late. So they end up back at the guy's apartment and um, they're cooking some nasty eggs or something. <laughs> but anyway, what what transpires that we won't spoil is a very touching and nicely subtle ode not only to Judy Garland's status as one of the one of the early gay icons, yeah. but also just to just to the, how painful it is to be lonely. Yes. You know? And it really is a touching moment and that kind of tone is one that is interrupted by these flashbacks. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, that are so heavy, but but uh still though, enjoyed it. And I think more than anything, the, the reason to see it is Renee Zellweger's performance is incredible. She's Her career has been a bit strange. I mean, you think she she was nominated for Chicago. She won for Cold Mountain. She was nominated for Bridget Jones' yeah, Diary. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she's, you know, and so there you go. It's a musical, a comedy, yeah. historical she drama. She was everywhere. She was everywhere, and, and, then, and she was always good. And then all yeah. of a sudden, she just disappeared. She took she, a long time off. Um, and well, then, I don't know that she did that she on did. purpose. She did. Okay. I did. I looked up. She did take a number of years off. But you're right. She did make some unfortunate choices. Yeah, she did. She did toward the end of when she was really frequently on screen. She did a lot of of bad romantic comedies, which does tend, yep. you know, a lot of really good actors fall to bad. Matthew McConaughey is one, <laughs> and then all of a sudden he just was like, "I'm done with this. I'm going to yeah. make a good movie." Yeah, um, and, and then she did, she did some voice work. She's been in some animated, done some voices, but it's just it's one of those deals where she's so good in this that. Almost seeing her name at the top of the marquee again. It's just like a blast. Oh yeah. Right, yeah. Renee Zellweger. Yeah. So she is she's she's fantastic. She is. I, I would be shocked if she's not uh nominated. We'll see how crowded the field is. Right. But uh it's really a, a nice I don't know what you'd call it, a reintroduction, if you don't want to call it a comeback, whatever. But uh she is by far the reason to see Judy. And it's it's three fourths of a really fine film Agreed. as well. For the families, we've got the animated tale of a magical yeti. We're trying to return to his family. It's called Abominable. <gasps> There's a Yeti on my roof. Hey, boy. Or girl. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely a boy. He escaped. I want my Yeti back. You can go your own way. I will make sure you get home. Back to your family. There are people looking for you. Go faster! Whoa. You can do magic? Ah. This is amazing! This is impossible! They're gaining on us! Was this your dad's violin? My dad used to play for me every night. Like, he was telling me that no matter how hard the journey gets, never give up. It's beautiful! This one... More of a middling effort, but but very cute. Yeah, it's the latest from DreamWorks, and uh, right away you think of DreamWorks, and they've had some big successes in animation, mainly due to the series of uh, the franchise of How to Train Your Dragon. One of the best. I know how much you love it. One of the best. And this one will make you think of that series a little bit. It will also 
Missing Link, if you happen to be one of the nine people who saw that movie. That's the one it really made me think of, Missing Link. It reminded me how good Missing Link was. I know, I know. And nobody saw it because I understand it was kind of caught between... It's too lofty for small children and it's probably a little bit... Slow-paced yeah. for older children, but, but man, it's, it was... it's basically it's an animated film, a family film for adults, which is not to say it's adult <laughs> yeah. animation. It is not, but it's gorgeous and, and it, smart oh, God, and dryly good. funny. It really was just charming and looked fantastic. And it was about a monster like a mm-hmm. Sasquatch trying to get home. So uh, anyway, the point is, if you can have a chance to see Missing Link, do it. Anyway, <laughs> we're talking about Abominable, and uh, yeah, you've got it's set in China. And uh, I made a joke earlier this morning that uh, it's set in China, but it's nice that everybody speaks English. And I'm not sure the the host I was talking to got it because it's an animated film. So what really? <laughs> could, they could talk anything. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, are we going to get? They'll have they'll have French people come in and exactly. dub these voices when it's when it's released in France. Exactly right. So it's set in China, and um, this young girl finds herself uh, in the company of a runaway yeti who has uh, stowed away Everest on the roof yeah the roof of her building and uh, he is running from some poachers and some mad doctors and they have nefarious plans for the yeti and because of a billboard outside her apartment uh, he, she surmises that yeah the yeti's home is the Himalayas she the the lead yeah Mount Everest yeah is is basically what is making the Yeti wistful for home. Mm-hmm. So right away, uh, she, Yi, <laughs> wants to get uh, wants to help get the Yeti home and then help get some help from, with a couple of friends. Interestingly, one of the friends, and I didn't notice this until the very end, and I happened to take a look at the credits, uh, the one older boy in the threesome that helps um, the Yeti get home, his name is Tenzig Norgay Trainer. Uh, and if you know anything about Mount Everest or climbing or anything like that, Tenzig Norgay... Or if your husband talks at length about Everest and climbing. <laughs> Tenzig Norgay <laughs> was the Sherpa guide who accompanied Sir Edmund Hillary up to the top of Mount Everest for the first exhibition ever to reach it. And it turns out that this boy is his grandson. That's crazy. Which I think is a great oh, little awesome. bit of trivia. And even though the, the voice talent here is not superstar status, it's fine. Yeah. It's really good. You do have Eddie Izzard and you have Sarah Paulson. Mm-hmm. But the rest of it is people you may not have heard of. But uh, everybody does a fine job, and it's it's a it's a heartwarming tale. It's totally fine. It doesn't look as great as say How to Train Your Dragon. Right? What couple, does though? Yeah, it is in 3D. There are a couple of sequences that do look mighty fine. But from start, Everest to, is cute. You want to hug him? <laughs> you do. I just want to hug do. him. He'll probably sell a few uh, sell a few plush toys. So it's one of those that is not going to be among the classics of animation. But it's one that if your parents, you're not going to make your eyes bleed if you have to sit through it and maybe more importantly if you have to get the dvd in a few months and have to put it on for repeated viewings it's not going to make you crazy at all there's even a couple of Coldplay songs if you're a Coldplay fan so uh abominable is perfectly fine not a classic but uh perfectly fine and it debuts this week as well this next one's certainly not for the kiddies. It's the story of the death of Dick and Zeke and Earl not wanting anybody to find out how he died. That's too bad, though, because news travels fast in small-town Alabama. It is the death of Dick Long. Did you hear about the murders? Huh? Someone dropped this guy off in front of the ER. Brutally, brutally murdered. 
Yes, we got a little carried away last night. Once I had a secret love. You know what, dude? What are they doing in Pulp Fiction? Carl Anthony Kiedis. Now you're thinking of Harvey Keitel, Anthony Kiedis is due from Red Hot Chili Shut the fuck up. Me. Dick last night. Yeah, I mean, for like, I mean, not really. I mean, yeah, but like, just for like a little while. I left early. He didn't come home. How did he die? Zeke, tell me the truth. And my secret love's no secret anymore. Well, first of all, with this title, if you get a chance to see the movie poster, uh, the movie poster teamed with the title of this right away, well, let's just say it'll, it'll pique your interest. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's weird. Yeah, the, the whole film is. And I, I suppose that that shouldn't be a big surprise with the director. Daniel Scheinert. There you go, Daniel Scheinert, who co-directed Swiss Army Man a couple of years ago. That was a weird movie. Yeah, I do remember one of the main things I remember that. Well, you had the uh, guy who powered himself through the water by farting. Right. Uh, it was Daniel Radcliffe and uh, Paul Dano. And then they sent us a nice beach towel. We do. Remember we that? have. Do we we have still a beach have that. Towel? We, of course, we do. Okay. We have a beach towel <laughs> with the big Daniel Radcliffe corpse on it. Yeah, I remember thinking that. I have to go back and read my review. I remember thinking that it was a, a nice, ambitious try at some different type of filmmaking. I didn't think it was totally successful in what it was trying to do, but it was fine. Well, I think this one is uh, is more of a success. It's definitely weird. And so you've got these three guys in a band, Pink Freud. Uh, they do a lot of Nickelback <laughs> covers, and they're having band practice at uh, at, at the one at the one guy's house. And when his wife and daughter go to bed, uh, Earl gets out some uh, some weed. You know, he's like, "Who wants to get weird?" And they get weird. <laughs> so so then it's basically a crime caper kind of mystery because you cut to um, the two leads carrying their buddy Dick Long to the emergency room hiding their faces, dropping him several times, and then running away and leaving him outside the emergency room. Now, they clearly think he's going to be okay, obviously. Uh-huh. And as you can tell from the title of the film, he is not <laughs> That's a going to be okay. Spoiler. Um, and, and so the rest of the film, you know, is... And so it's basically, in a lot of ways, on, on a very surface level, it's sort of, you know, a crime caper fueled by idiots, Right. The idiocy of the characters. And since the characters are small town Alabama and guys, it's very easy to kind of pass this off as a one note sort of hillbilly mockery. Right. And it's definitely it's definitely comedic and it definitely builds on the idiotic decisions that these characters make. But the way that the film bears their souls, it's so generous in the way that it treats its characters that it just it's it's c- consistently surprising everything about it uh, and it's not just the three main the three guys involved in the caper it's their wives it's the police sheriff <laughs> it's the police deputy all of them they're just like regular small town uh, can you believe this is happening yeah. in our town kind of people and it's the debut screenplay for the writer is Billy Chu and you get, I didn't really look up anything about his background, but you get the feeling that he's known a few of these people. You absolutely do. Yeah, <laughs> there's there's no question. Because, and it's funny, it's it just toes this, it's, it's, he walks this incredible tightrope of making fun of them because he does, and understanding and sympathizing and even empathizing with them because he does. And not condescending. No, and the, the more disturbing and bizarre 
the behavior becomes, the more you understand about this mystery, mm-hmm. the more vulnerable and, and believable the characters become, which is, you know, believe me, in anybody else's hands, the film would want to distance you, the viewer, from what they've done by making it even more of a broad stroke comedy. Mm-hmm. And this doesn't at all. Yeah. And it, I, I, you know, and I can't believe it works, but man, it really does. <laughs> and it's one that I don't know how wide of a release this no, is it's, getting. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, well, it's an A24 film, so independent. And so it's not going to get a, a nationwide release, but it's going to get the word of mouth and kind of build from there. So it may be a few weeks before it's in your area, but, and be prepared. Yeah. <laughs> like it's going to go some places. But if you have a chance, I really recommend and seeing course, it. And of course, as you may know, if you, if you hear it's 824, Just go. chances are pretty good. I mean, they don't do a lot of duds. No. Their track record right now is pretty good. So uh, we would recommend, if you can find it, The Death of Dick Long. Got a couple of good documentaries to recommend this week as well. The first one is about the life and times of Molly Ivins called Raise Hell. I bring to you our own Molly Ivins. Molly Ivins appeared in papers all over the country. How many legendary print journalists are there? I'm a Texan. I drive a pickup truck. I drink beer. I hunt. I'm a liberal. So what? Molly came in like a house of fire, making riotous fun of the legislature. I accidentally became an authority on George W. Bush. Like the guy who climbed Everest, it was there. The people who Molly took apart were the right people to aim at, and they knew it. What's your take on Newt, the draft-dodging, dope-smoking, deadbeat dad who divorced his dying wife? You bet there's censorship. Anytime you do the kind of work Molly did, there's a price to pay for it. Somebody has got to look them in the eye and speak truth, and she did. She was the coolest person ever. She really was. Uh, if you don't know Molly Ivins, a real firebrand uh, reporter early on, but really she became a legend by being a political columnist and then author, eventually syndicated. And she's a Texan, and she had that way of speaking uh, and way of framing things, but behind it was this great intelligence yeah. and a, a great curiosity and a real knack for just getting to the heart of the corruption in politics. Yeah. And she always brought it back to her home state. She always would just say, oh, Texas politics. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, right when she was had her biggest audience, a Texan became president of the United States, yeah. a former Texas governor. So she had incredible insight there. And uh, she has a really interesting career. Like, I didn't know that she was working for the New York Times in the late 70s when Elvis died. She not only wrote the obit, Elvis's obit, for the New York Times, but she covered his funeral. <laughs> uh, and this was back before she was doing all the op-ed stuff. Yeah. But she's just a fascinating person. A and real... she was six foot something. She so was. for tall girls. Yeah, she was six <laughs> feet tall. According to this, she was six feet tall by the time she was 12 years right. old. Right, And uh, came from a, a very conservative, very wealthy family in Texas and really butted heads with her father when she started to become a liberal. Mm -hmm. And she was just had a real passion for civil liberties. Yes. Real civil liberties. And she was just a firebrand about it. And of course, attracted legions of what one colleague called constituents rather than readers. <laughs> and, of course, she also attracted many a hater. I imagine, many that. I imagine that's so, true. You know, if you are a fan, if you know of her, of her work at all, this is very interesting. And it's very fast-moving and really entertaining to watch. The director, the writer-director is Janice Engel, and she's clearly a fan. I yeah. mean, let's not be beat around the bush here. Yeah. Um, she's a fan. This is 
talking to the choir of people that like Molly Ivins. Mm-hmm. I mean, but at the same time, it doesn't shy away toward the toward the end of the film. It doesn't shy away from some of the demons that dogged her, mm-hmm. like the, the, all people have their problems. doesn't really dig in too deep, but it does uh, broach those subjects. Uh, so it's not a total hero worship. But uh, yeah, it's coming. It's made by fans. That, that's, that's clear. But it's definitely a, a life worth getting a salute like this. Right. And especially if you're a fan of Molly Ivins, definitely would uh, recommend looking up Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. It's out this week. And one that begs for the big screen. Water and ice are shown around the world in all of their many powerful forms. It's called Aquarella. We were talking before about how great a time this is, not only for documentary fans, but for documentarians. Yeah. We've mentioned a few times on this podcast how great a year 2019 has been for documentaries. Oh, absolutely. And three of our favorites... Amazing Grace, mm-hmm. Apollo 11, mm-hmm. and They Shall Not Grow Old, yes. really came from the result of technological breakthroughs. Yeah, absolutely. And this one sort of does as well, because it's director, it's Russian director Viktor Kosakovsky. And some of the shots he gets with this ca- his cameras about water and ice around the world, just astounding. Right. It's one of those that really, uh, seems like I've said this a lot, just calls for the big screen. If you can find this the theater in your area, oh, please see it on the big screen. I will tell you, there's no, there's no explanation. There's no voiceover narration. No, I no. love that about it. A little bit of death metal. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's funny how you see these big waves building and the death metal kicks in. Like, all right, that works. <laughs> because it's all about power and beauty and death. And there are some humans in the movie, very few spoken words, and there's tension and there's excitement, and it's just, it acts for a while, it really does form a narrative mm-hmm. of just this war between mankind and water, trying to harness it, mm-hmm. trying to use it, trying to uh, not let it kill you mm-hmm. in either frozen form or just, you know, liquid form. It's, it's amazing. It's one of those deals where you think, yeah, a documentary about water? Yeah. Especially <laughs> if you like nature documentaries, this one will just just astound you. With some of these, uh, some of these sequences, and again, big screen, big screen, big screen. If you can <laughs> possibly find it and enjoy that death metal of aqua. By the way, aquarella is Portuguese for watercolor, and there are a lot of watercolors and a lot of things going on with water above it, below it, in it. Uh, <laughs> just fascinating. So enjoy. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Takes us to the lobby where we've got a few. Yesterday comes out. We enjoyed it. The uh, tale of life without the Beatles. Yeah, it's so charming. It is. Yeah. Another one of those premises where, well, we, I think we mentioned at the time that we reviewed it here. It was so, it seemed so obvious that Danny Boyle, the director, thought, no, that's already been done. Right. But it hadn't been done. No. <laughs> so it's this struggling musician who's the only one to remember the Beatles, and that's good because he can pass all their songs off as his own. And it is. It's just charming. It is so and charming. And I liked the way they wrapped it up. It didn't take the way that you probably think they're going to wrap it yep. up. And it was very nice, so we enjoyed that. Lose, you liked. I liked it very much because it's it's unusual to come across a truly original film. And it's Lose is L U Z. And she's a cab driver, but she's kind of reenacting, sometimes under hypnosis, a very bizarre cab fare. 
that kind of leads back to the whole thing is basically uh, it's a very independent, very low budget, fascinating kind of deconstruction of the uh, possession mm-hmm. horror. Yeah. And uh, and I loved it. The latest Shaft is out on uh, home video this week. Parts of it worked for me. I, I remember seeing the trailer and thinking, OK, they're making it a straight up comedy that could have possibilities in trying to move those 70s sensibilities of Shaft into today. You could have fun with that. And they tried to using his son, yeah. uh, J.J., as as the, the catalyst for that. Some of it works. and Most some, of it doesn't. And some of it yeah. doesn't. I, I think mean, I we, liked it a little better than you I did. I think you did, but I think we were both, you know, hopeful. Yeah, I was, and I was ultimately disappointed. But there there is some fun to be had, especially, I mean, who doesn't like to hear Samuel L. Jackson just... F-bombing all over the place. He does it so well. Uh, Child's Play comes out this week. Speaking of disappointed. Yeah, because, again, I was cautiously optimistic because Mark Hamill is the voice of the doll. And Aubrey Plaza is the the little boy's mom. She's the one who uh, wrongheadedly gives a a doll to her son for his birthday. Mm -hmm. And then the son kills a bunch of people. And it just, you know. The doll. The doll kills a bunch of people. And it just doesn't make take advantage of the of the promise that it starts with. And it, it, yeah, it just definitely fell flat for me. Yeah, I will say we have a lot to do with the horror community uh, here in Columbus, Ohio, and of course, a lot around social media, and heard from a lot of people that really liked it, really did, but uh, we can't say that we really did. Uh, And one has got to be probably one of the worst movies I've seen so far this year. Anna comes out on home video. It's the latest from Luc Besson, another beautiful killing machine this one happened so a luke basson movie yeah exactly then? uh anna also happens her cover is that she's a high fashion model and all she really wants is her freedom from a world that continues to use and objectify her and pot, like every luke basson movie does all lived happily ever after because that is exactly what this movie yeah. does and i, I couldn't get was, over the cash for this oh what are Killian Murphy and Luke Evans doing? And Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren. What are Mirren. they doing I, in this movie? Yeah, it was a, just a... Damn, Helen. Come uh, on. <laughs> it was a total waste. Ooh, next week is a doozy. Joker yeah, comes out. That's Holy the big, 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 big mo- one. Yeah, and making news this week because yeah. somebody put out, was it the Army or the... Put out warnings about they could possibly trigger, shoot... It. Boy, that's all we need. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Joaquin Phoenix as Joker comes out uh, next week. Harpoon. Yeah, it's a uh, um, kind of horror comedy set at sea, lost at sea horror comedy. It's 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 independent. I enjoyed Gilligan, it. The Skipper. No, not quite. No. Uh-uh. Wrinkles the Clown. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that one. We'll Rink- watch that one tonight. And a documentary that we are really looking forward to. Memory colon the origins of Alien. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. So we'll be talking about those next week. In the meantime, let us know what you thought about anything this week or from the past few weeks, whatever. Always glad to keep the conversation going on Twitter. You can find us. We're at Mad Wolf. That's M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F on Facebook and Instagram. It is Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website with all our written reviews and also our horror movie-only podcast, Fright Club. You can find all those shenanigans at madwolf.com. Thank you much for stopping by the screening room, as always. And if you could just do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review, we would so appreciate that. Sure would. So until next week, she is Hope Mad. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.